As I was thinking this week, uh, maybe it's just me, but uh, I feel like we live in a culture of skepticism. And what I mean by that is it's, uh, it's hard for us to take people at their word these days, isn't it? Especially if that person is a politician or an athlete, right? Those in particular. Because we see examples of individuals in both those categories who have openly, publicly, adamantly proclaimed their innocence, only to find out later that it was all a big lie. One of the more recent examples, and probably the most shocking for me personally, was Lance Armstrong, right? Here was a guy who became an American hero in a sport that really nobody cared about, cycling, right? Guys on bikes, it's not a big deal. But all of a sudden, everybody was interested when Lance Armstrong continued to win and had such tremendous success. And then when he fought that battle against cancer and won that battle as well, and formed this foundation that that began to take in uh, astronomical amounts of of money. In fact, how many of you... uh, at any one point in time, wore one of those yellow Livestrong bracelets. Let me see your hands. It's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be embarrassed. Because if you did, you're in good company. Uh, I learned that in just one year, they earned over $26 million from those yellow wristbands. In one year. So you can imagine with such popularity how people were so convinced that they were willing to stand by Lance Armstrong when he time after time Denied the use of ever having done performance-enhancing drugs. I think one of the reasons that he was so bold in those claims is because the culture of cycling had become so corrupt that no one was willing to stand up and deny his claims because it would incriminate their own guilt. And so it gave him this false sense of security that he could... Uh, go before everybody and and nobody was going to say anything. The facts would remain hidden. The the judge would remain ignorant and he would be considered innocent. And it worked for a while. And then the truth came out. And Lance Armstrong went from American hero to national disgrace. From one who was idolized to ultimately a man who became hated by a lot of people because it appears that most everything he said was a lie. Now, I want you to know that I believe that what Lance Armstrong did was wrong. But I also want you to know that I think every one of us at some point or another are guilty of falling in a similar trap. You and I have probably been, in one time or another, in a place where we kept things hidden in order to protect the perception of our innocence among others, right? But as a Christian... We need to understand that that simply doesn't work that well. And here's the reason why. We stand before a judge that is not ignorant of the facts. He's a holy God, all-knowing, ever-present, from whom nothing is hidden, whether great or small. We might be able to hide our secrets from others, and many times we do, but the fact of the matter remains we cannot hide anything from God. So the only way that I have confidence before Him is if my conscience is clear, which doesn't mean that I no longer make mistakes, but what it does mean is that I'm unwilling to hide them. Because in the end, I understand that God's grace is always bigger than my guilt. 
God's grace is always bigger than my guilt. That's an important message for us to hear, and it's exactly where John is going to take us in our passage this morning. And this message has uh, impacted me more than most this week. And my heart's desire is that the same would be true for you. Because I believe, as Bill mentioned this morning, this is one of those truths that is life-changing if our heart is open and receptive to that truth of God's Word. So let's just pray that that be the case for us this morning. God, as we uh, come before you this morning, we recognize that the Scripture is full of places where you tell us to come with confidence, that we can see, as, as even Tim said this morning, that that veil has been torn and, and we have the right to enter into your presence, clean and forgiven, yet so many times we're inhibited by that because there are things that uh, we refuse to let go of, some that to this day remain hidden. But we need to see very clearly this morning that you are an all-knowing, ever-present God, things great or small. You know all. And your heart's desire is for us to humble ourselves before you so that we can find grace and forgiveness in your name. That is our heart's desire this morning and our prayer to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, where we left off last. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. If you would... Uh, Read with me as I read that with you. Verse 19. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I'm just going to stop there and just tell you that 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 John's intent, as we have been talking all along, to, to give an assurance of salvation for his reader becomes explicitly clear in our passage this morning. Here in verse 19, he begins with those words, we shall know. That, that phrase is, is a future tense statement, and it's intended to describe an ongoing experience, an ongoing assurance based on an ongoing experience that assurance comes from from qualities that he just got through talking about in the previous passage so that when it says we shall know by this the this is pointing us back to those things that he had previously described things like a a spirit-filled life where the the qualities of of christ's life within us begin to flow out through obedience and love where we see God's truth producing life, transforming us into the image of Christ. So that the more we see these qualities of Christ's life in our life, we have an assurance that we belong to Him. But then in our passage this morning, John takes us one step further. And he introduces us to something that's of great significance. He repeats it several times in this passage. We see it in these two verses. And it's our heart. Our heart. Here he explains how the the outward evidence of obedience 
and love will lead to an internal conviction of our heart before God. Beginning with the possibility that sometimes we feel the painful conviction of the Spirit. It's what, Paul, what John means when he describes it as when our heart condemns us. I mean, after all, how many times have we sat in a sermon like a Sunday morning like this or somewhere else or been in a conversation with somebody and some word of truth hits us? Where? Right in our heart. Like a two-edged sword, we kind of wince. It gets our attention. We say, ooh, that, that kind of hurt a little bit. That got my attention. I believe that's what John is talking about here. And that conviction of the Spirit, as painful as it may be, is actually a good thing. It's a good thing because it's a sign of life and the evidence of His transforming work within us. In other words, the pain of conviction is a gift from God. I've mentioned before that when I was at the hospital, one of the things that I did early in my career was work with burn and wound patients. And one of the the patients that we saw routinely during my time at the hospital were diabetic patients, patients who had uncontrolled diabetes. And and what would happen is they would lose sensation in their extremities, usually beginning with their feet, their hands. And what would happen for them many times is that they would walk along and they would step on a piece of glass or, or something that would stick in their foot, but they couldn't feel it. It was in the bottom of their foot, so they couldn't see it. And only after it had developed a significant infection would they then come to get medical care. And by that time, the infection many times was so advanced that it had become gangrenous. So that the only treatment option was to amputate that dead tissue so that the infection didn't take over their entire body and become septic. Because that's a real possibility. And I promise you, if you were to ask any one of those patients they would tell you what a gift it is to feel pain. And the same is true in our spiritual life as well. It is a gift from God when our heart is sensitive enough to tell us something's not right. Very often, that's God's way of helping us identify sin before it becomes an infection that spreads throughout our body. Because here's what happens when we no longer feel that painful sensation of the guilt of sin in our life. Turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul writing to his son in the Lord who came to know the Lord through Paul's ministry and he cares for him and he's writing to him and listen to what he tells him in chapter 4 verse 1 to the young Timothy. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful doctrines, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, now listen, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. This actually relates very well to our passage this morning because Paul is telling Timothy that there will be people who will be deceived, as he says, by doctrines of demons, delivered by false teachers, just as we see in 1 John, 
who have become so callous in their conscience, in their heart, that they no longer feel the pain of compromise and lies. Their conscience, their, their heart no longer feels guilt. And so the deadly disease of sin takes over their life. John wants us to know that this pain of guilt is a gift from God and it should not be ignored. Because he goes on to say in our passage that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The Spirit may may work on our heart and convict us of sin and praise God for that. It's a good thing. But God reminds us that His forgiveness, His grace is what overwhelms our guilt. Because He knows all things. Which is a reminder that, that we cannot hide anything from the eyes of God. So when we feel that painful conviction in our life, don't try to assume that if you ignore it, that no one can see it, including God. That's like playing hide-and-seek with a little kid, you know, who hides their eyes, thinking if he can't see you, then you must not be able to see them, right? Well, that's real cute when you're playing a game of hide-and-seek with a little kid. It's a very sad thing when it invades our relationship with God. Don't cover your eyes to sin. It's not a game when it involves your relationship with God who knows all things. Because ignoring our sin, or or in some way just wallowing in our failures, unable to, to get out of that pit of despair, will cause us to forfeit a great blessing. If we choose not to be honest in our heart before, before a merciful and gracious God. And that's John's point as he continues in verse 21. Read with me in verse 21. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His heart. You see, it's good to be honest before God. Because His grace is always greater than our guilt. Our heart may condemn us. But when we see our sin in view of the cross, it changes everything. Because then we realize what happens. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we feel the pain of conviction. Praise God for that truth. But when we have the right view of God, When we see Him as He intends for us to, we find grace and forgiveness in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 8 reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So we may feel that conviction, that that condemnation of our guilt may come, and it may cause us to get our attention, but it's intended to bring us to the cross where we see that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's John's heart when he told us earlier in in chapter 1, verse 9, to what? To confess our sins to God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, that's that cleansing forgiveness that gives us a clean heart and the confidence to go before God with a clear conscience. Our faith in the gospel is the means by which the guilt of our sin is overcome so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 22 tells us the outcome of that kind of heart, that faith before God. Look at what it says. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. As we read this verse, it's very important for us to understand that our obedience to God doesn't in some way obligate Him to answer our prayers. That somehow our good deeds earn the right for us to to get what we want. Because that would mean that our obedience is motivated by some selfish self-interest. Something like we see in our kids when they miraculously come become compliant when we offer them a reward for their obedience, right? So if I were to go to my younger son, Grant, and I would say, hey, Grant, if you'll clean up your room like I asked you to, then when you're done, we're going to go get that action figure that I know you really want. What do you think is going to happen? He's going to do exactly what I told him to do. Why? Is it a pure heart? No, it's a toy. That's why he's going to do it. It's, it's the reward. That's the motivation. Because I promise you, as soon as he gets that reward, his willing compliance is not going to continue. In the same way, it's important for us not to read this verse as God's attempt to bribe us into obedience. If you do what I ask, I'll give you what you want. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what John is suggesting here is that our obedience actually transforms our heart by changing our desires. Okay, don't miss that. Our obedience actually transforms our heart by changing our desires. So that the more we walk in, the, in His will, guess what happens? The more we desire to do His will. We learn from experience to appreciate and trust that God is faithful, that He's trustworthy, that He is a loving Father who, who desires the highest good for His children. And we trust that. So our desire is to do what is His desire. And this is what causes our will and God's will to collide. It's where it all comes together. So that our prayers reflect His heart. And we have the answers to our requests because they are in alignment with His will for our life. In other words, what we want as reflected in our prayers is aligned with what He gives us and the answers to those prayers according to His will. But understand that this is not a formula. It sounds easy, doesn't it? But this is a relationship. And like all relationships, it takes time to grow and to mature. And it requires us to to walk in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, to to be in fellowship with who Christ is and and what He's called us to. It's a relationship. And that seems to be 
John's point as he continues on in our passage. Look at verse 23. It says, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. And the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. As we think through and look at these last two verses, it's important to see the connection that John makes between faith and love. In fact, it's so important that he's going to argue that these two things, faith and love, are ultimately inseparable. He says, belief in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love for one another. The Christian life demands the union of these two things. John begins with this attribute of faith in his name now i know we've all heard that before but i think we probably don't appreciate the significance of that as would have the first century church who heard those same words and the reason is is because we don't give a name the same type of priority as they did because when it says to believe in a name it means to believe in all that that name stood for and they were very intentional about the names that they used during that time For example, you may remember uh, a man that Jesus met who was the brother of Andrew. And immediately upon that introduction, Jesus does what? He changes his name from Simon, the name that his mother had given him at birth, to a name Petrus or Peter, which means rock. You'll remember that confession that Peter made before Jesus when he asked, who do people say that I am? And, and, and Peter stepped forward and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response, you remember what Jesus told him. He says, upon this Petros, this rock, I shall build the church. And when he said that, he wasn't talking about Peter as a person in terms of how he would be the first pope of the church that would be built. That's not the point. The point is, is that he would be building the church upon all that that name represents. The strong foundation of that confession of faith of who Jesus Christ is. That name, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And so when you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. You're believing in all that that name represents. And John is very purposeful when he says it's a name given to the Son of God, which implies that divine nature of God incarnate. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that name Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And then we also know that the title of Christ is given to the Messiah. The one that God promised that He would send to deliver His people from their sins. It's what the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he wrote and said that this would be the one that would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our sins. That the punishment that that was on Him was what gave us peace with God. So that when we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we are confessing that Jesus is God incarnate, whose death on the cross was the punishment 
for my sin, the Lord of my salvation. And that He was resurrection and conquered death by which He gives me the promise of eternal life. That He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because it's finished. The price has been paid. And He's not slow about His promise as some count slowness. He wants all to come to repentance. To know that He is the Lord of salvation. And one day, He will return to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we begin eternally that relationship that we will have with Him in a new heaven, in a new earth, and that's what we're living for. When you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, that is what you are confessing. All that that name means is what you are confessing. See, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I believe who He is is the Lord and Savior of my life. John goes on to talk about how this inward expression of our faith then flows out of it as an outward expression of our love, where our love actually validates that profession of faith. So that that means that that I don't have an assurance simply because of a decision I made or, or even the specifics of how that decision was made. I can't tell you how many people that I have visited with are just paralyzed because they're trying to look back for some years at the point, well, when did I make that decision and, and, and was I sincere and, and did I do it in the right way? You see, by combining these attributes of faith and love, John is helping us understand that our assurance is not only based on a decision I made back then. It must have an ongoing validation of how I live my life right now. That there should be just as much assurance in what I said as in how I live. where my life is marked by self-sacrificing love as I see in the life of Christ and I do not possess on my own. You remember, it's what we talked about last week, right? The presence of, or, or the example of Christ's love validates the, the presence of Christ's life in me. There should be a great assurance when we see the evidence of faith and love combined. As God's Spirit transforms us to be more like Christ, both in what we say and in how we live. Look at how John finishes in verse 24. He says, And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now I want you to notice here that the assurance of our Salvation is not based on some special revelation that we get individually, independently from anyone else around us. In other words, our faith in Christ is never isolated to our private world. Where somehow I can live however I like and know somewhere in my heart that I really belong to God. 
It doesn't happen that way because John is telling us that the evidence of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit is always seen in the outward expression of love and obedience. You cannot believe in Christ and not have love for one another. Because the love of Christ is always present and active in the ones who believe. This is all made possible, as John says, by that gift of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm convinced if we take these truths to heart, they truly can be life-changing in some amazing, amazing ways. I mean, just take, for example, how amazing it would be to actually have a freedom from sin's guilt. Okay? Maybe I'm the only one here this morning, but that's incredibly good news to me. Okay? Freedom from sin's guilt. So often we become overwhelmed by our failures and our inadequacies that we lose sight of God's grace and forgiveness. I've mentioned to you before that Terry and I are doing this parenting study with uh, some families in our neighborhood. And at first we saw it as an outreach to them. And as we are in it, we're realizing that God has some important things for us. To the point that many times we have walked away feeling that painful heart of conviction in areas that we need to do a better job as parents. And we've been challenged because there are times where we've been stuck there. As we walk out of these sessions feeling like, Man, we're failing. Instead of receiving God's grace to begin a new direction, we become paralyzed by the shame of our failure. And I know for certain that there are here people here this morning that feel the very same thing in your marriage, that feel the very same thing in how you handle your finances, that feel the very same thing and how you relate to one another, the friendships that you've had, the ones that are broken. It's that shame of guilt. Well, if we believe that what our passage has to say this morning is true, if we believe that, then listen to me. This is the last day that you need to feel that pain of shame and guilt. Because today is the day of forgiveness of grace. That's the promise of Scripture. We are no longer prisoners of our past. If today is the day that we repent and believe. Do you understand that? Today is the day. I mean, like Bill said, so so often men are just as guilty as women. Women are just as guilty as men. We hear these things and, and we put them off, don't we? Maybe tomorrow I'll get past this. And oftentimes all we're doing is just ignoring it, (laughs) hiding it. And God's saying, if you come to me and view all things in view of the cross, then my grace is sufficient for you. In fact, there's a passage in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. This is good. I don't want you to miss this, so take a look at it with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. This is a promise. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him, Christ, 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That's a beautiful verse. And I don't want you to miss the fact that that his forgiveness is directly tied to his grace. Did you see that? It says, we have forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. So we can have confidence in his never-ending forgiveness because we can be certain that we will never, ever, ever exhaust the riches of his grace that have been lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. This is precisely why the writer of Hebrews will tell us that we can have confidence. as We, we can approach the throne of grace as confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. And that need may be the forgiveness of sins. That need may be the encouragement that we need in a time of, of difficulty. It may be the gift of faith in a moment of doubt. It may be the ability to extend forgiveness in the way that we have been forgiven. Whatever that need may be, God's grace is always sufficient because His power is perfected in weakness. That's another promise. And God also promises that He is always able to make all grace abound to you, always giving you all sufficiency in all things. Now you tell me, does that sound like He's left anything out? That He may give you, always giving you, all sufficiency in all things. Here's the question. Do you believe that's true? Because hearing doesn't bring healing. I think we need to hear that in Bible church sometimes. Because we hear it a lot. But hearing doesn't bring healing. You know what brings healing? Hearing and doing. Hearing and doing. Faith and love. They're inseparable. And God is calling you to the throne of grace to find forgiveness and receive mercy in a time of need. And there is not a person in this room who doesn't need that daily, including the one speaking to you this morning. So here's what I want us to do. Um, I think this is too important say amen and walk out of here through those doors where that ray from the enemy makes you forget everything you just heard. Okay? We are going to take this to heart. This is what God's called us to do in our passage this morning is to take this to heart. And there's a tool that I've used that that I think is really valuable. It's by Kenneth Boa. It's called Face to Face. And all it is is praying scripture. It's taking the truths of God's word and praying them for your life. And I'm going to do this for us this morning. I'm going to lead us in a time where we reflect on Scripture to allow that truth to penetrate our heart. And I'm going to put it in, uh, I don't know what my grammar is, third person. I'm going to present it as prayers from us as a church body, okay? This is going to be a we prayer. You understand? So I want you to just give me a moment of silence and prepare your heart as we together as the body of Christ, go before the Lord and let me lead us 
in that time through the words of Scripture. Lord, my God, you are God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. You execute justice for the fatherless and the widow. and You love the alien and give him food and clothing. Our soul magnifies you, Lord, and our spirits rejoice in you, our Savior, for you, O oh mighty one, have done great things for us. And holy is your name. Your mercy is on those who fear you from generation to generation. Just in the quietness of your heart, I want you to take a moment before that throne of grace to express those thoughts of praise and worship to the God who loves you. See him in view of the cross as the demonstration of that love. Father, your word tells us that your eyes see the way people live. You see all their steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where people who do evil can hide. You do not need to examine them further that they should be that they should come before you in judgment. So in the quietness of your heart, knowing that no thing is hidden from God, come clean. Come clean. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. Come before the Lord in your heart. As your word says, let us hear your unfailing love this morning. For we have put our trust in you. Show us the way we should walk. For to you we lift up our soul. So again, in the quietness of your heart, just offer your life to the Lord as a living and holy sacrifice, good and acceptable, with a clean and clear conscience, having been cleansed by the grace that has been lavished upon you. Lord, as your word says, may we honor all people, love the community of believers, fear you, and honor the King. You, Lord, our God, are faithful, who keeps your covenant and your loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love you and keep your commands. We will tell of your loving kindness, Lord, and praise your deeds according to all you have done for us. 
of your great goodness towards the house of Israel and to the church at Melanie Park, which you have bestowed on us according to your mercies and according to the multitude of your loving kindnesses, to the praise and the glory of your grace that has been lavished upon us. Now, I know that there are those um, who have been burdened. And I pray that this is the first step. But we know that this is a relationship. And this takes time. And we need people to come alongside of us. So let me urge you, if God stirred something in your heart, that you don't ignore it. And that you grab somebody this week and you tell them, here's what God is impressing upon you. And you ask them to walk with you and to stand together. And you all pray for one another. But allow God to take those things that he puts on our heart and use them in a way that builds his kingdom. Okay? As we finish up this morning, I want to ask uh, HUD to introduce a new family in our church. And then, uh, HUD, if you don't mind, after doing so, would you close this in prayer? And as we're doing that, this is a good Sunday. If you need to mill around and grab somebody and have that conversation I just spoke of this morning, then that's okay. This would be a good time to do that. Just pull them aside and say, hey, I need to speak with you. Be courageous enough to do that this morning, okay? Hud? Great family. I uh, want you to come welcome. I also, I don't know if Blake's there too, but downstairs, but uh, their son Blake is here. Uh, but come welcome the Christensen's, a great family. Come, come join with us. Father God, thank you uh, today for a great time of worship, uh, Father, where we can honor and glorify you. Thanks for the message that you gave today. We pray that we would really, uh, Father, meditate on those things that we know of your goodness and grace to us each and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name.